This morning we're in uh, the second chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians. I think you all have uh, the notes. I'm pretty sure if you're following in those, it's uh, page 5 is where we uh, are this morning. Um, I kind of think it's important for me to review a couple of things because some of you, because of your schedules and everything, are not able to be here every week. But um, maybe two or three things by way of a summary and review. First um, Corinthians is uh, a letter Paul wrote uh, early 50s, 52, 53, at the latest 55. Uh, Corinth was a major, and I mean major, Greco-Roman city. And if you look at the maps that are in the packet, Corinth was right on an isthmus, and isthmus is a bridge of land that connects uh, two other larger uh, bridges, right in the center of Greece. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was a trading city. It was a a city where, um, especially by the time of Paul, a number of retired Roman officials had begun to live. It was a city of wealth. Uh, It was a city of unbelievable immorality. They used a term which was not a compliment. Uh, in Greek, it was kridziadzomai, uh, which meant uh, to be acting or living like a Corinthian, which was not a compliment. Uh, it, was a, it was a terrible thing to say of someone. So in that kind of a city, it would be comparable to a New York City, a Chicago, a Los Angeles of, of America, or like a Paris of, of Western Europe or whatever. Paul planted a church. The church had grown, and it's a church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, primarily Gentiles. It's a church that involved uh, uh, a mixture of, socially that is, a mixture of very wealthy, many, again, as I said, retired Roman officials, as well as merchants, and their slaves, which was a very typical social arrangement in the ancient world. So it's in this context that Paul is is uh, uh, writing this letter. They had apparently, uh, by they I mean the churches at Corinth, had apparently written him a series of questions. And this letter is a response to that. And he begins where we are right now by focusing on something he heard, probably from these individuals, that there are divisions within the church. Little schisms, little cliques. And that's what he's addressing. And he uses the, the first part to give a wonderful, wonderful exposition of the, the role of God's wisdom in our lives. And at the core, at the center of God's wisdom is the message of Christ crucified. And he says to them, one of the reasons why there are so many divisions in your church is you don't understand the power of the message of Christ crucified. <clears throat> And we're not there. We'll get there in a week or two. The second reason is they misunderstood the role of the ministers, like Paul and Apollos and Peter. They're just God's instrument. Don't elevate them. Elevate him. But he's not there yet. Where we are this morning is in chapter 2, beginning with verse 6. And I want to go through 16. No questions today. If you ask a question, I'm going to ignore it. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I would really like to do this as a unit. I mean, if we don't, if I have to stop at, you know, roughly a quarter of uh, one, uh, and we're not done, that's okay. But 
if it's possible for us to do this as a unit, that'd be really good. So if it's possible, no, I'm just sort of kidding, but in a way I'm not kidding. So he, if you're following in, in the notes here in, in the way I've outlined this, he's talking about God's wisdom. He has already established that the core aspect of God's wisdom is the message of Christ crucified. And he tells them, and we sort of got through some of this last week, in verse 6, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, wisdom not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom. And that God's wisdom he called a mystery. And I talked last week, I think I wrote it, although we had the big whiteboard last week, but mystery is really a transliteration of a word. Transliteration means you take letters from the Greek language and bring it over into English. And the problem with that is we take an English word that's 2,000 years old, we try to make sense out of it. It's mystery. It's something that was hidden, now revealed. And that is the message of Christ. Now, verse 10. So that's what we did last week. But verse 10. Why don't people get the message? Why don't people understand the message? Why don't people, uh, like the, the power, like he says in verse 6, the rulers of this age, the powers of this age, why don't they get it? It doesn't fit their model. They're what? It doesn't fit their model. Okay. But there's a supernatural reason. God's not working in them. I mean, they don't, without God, they're like, they, they don't see the to them, some of the spiritual things. And some That's right. That's right. They don't have the spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, um, this, this passage from verse 10 through verse 16 is one of my most favorite passages. So uh, if you'll let me take some time in this, I want to draw some things up on the board in a minute. But let me read verses 10 through 13. Now remember... He said, we speak, we preach, we declare, we proclaim the wisdom of God. That wisdom which is a mystery now revealed. Something that was hidden now made clear. Something that is in the Old Testament, but now we really understand what it means. And of course, it's all about Christ. Then he said, it's like he's saying, it's almost like there's a little break. And he says, parenthetically, I wonder why people don't get this message. Why don't they understand it? Verse 10. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. Now, in my Bible, I took the little word revealed in verse 10 and circled it. And the word mystery in verse 7 and circled it and connected the two with a line. Because the key... The missing piece in a person's life is the Spirit. Why don't they get it? Why is, as he talked in verse 23 of chapter 1 and 24 of chapter 1, why is the message of Christ crucified to the Gentile, to the person that's not a Jew and doesn't know Christ, repugnant, fully silly, stupid nonsense? Why to the Jew who's rejected Christ is it a stumbling block? Answer, 
They don't have the Spirit. So he is now about to articulate for us in a, in a really majestic way the role of the Spirit. Now I want to make one other point here if I can. It's not a bunny trail, it's kind of a key to understanding what he's doing. As Paul took a word that was very familiar word to the Greeks, wisdom, Sophia, philosophy, the love of wisdom. He takes in this passage, 10 through 13, he takes a method of logic that Aristotle developed it, that developed and applies it to his, to his, uh, his teaching here. Do you understand what I mean? He takes a methodology, a logic, a way of constructing an argument and uses it. So as he met the Greeks in using their term wisdom, he now meets the Greeks on their own turf of how they constructed an argument. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a Greek methodology that he's using. Paul knew his audience. And he had studied, he knew the Greek way of thinking. He's talking to Greeks, I'll meet him on their own turf. He tells us in chapter 9, I become all things to all men that I might win some. Here's an example of that. So, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man, the conscious spirit of a man, which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit. Now, we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God with this purpose, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Things which we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, very difficult phrase to translate, which combines spiritual truths with spiritual words. Well, I wish I had the big whiteboard today, but I don't. But I do have these cool markers. Here is what Aristotle taught the Greeks. This is how you construct a logical argument. You make a major premise, construct a minor premise, then you draw your conclusion. Okay, what's his major premise in verses 10 through 13? The spirit knows, I'm going to put this in my own word, but this is what he's saying. three dots mean you're drawing a conclusion. Therefore, we know God, His wisdom, 
his truth. This is, a, this is a very, very important part of what is going on in your life right now if you put your faith in Christ. If you're walking with the Lord, this is what's going on in your life. This is what's going on in a class like this. Because Paul makes it clear, as, as we started and saw in verse 10b and into 11, it is the Spirit of God who knows God and searches the depths of God. Just like Andrew has you know, consciousness that knows him, knows his heart, knows what's going on inside him. So the Spirit knows the deep things of God, and only the Spirit knows those. But he has chosen to reveal those things to us. He is our teacher. He says to us there in verse, um, verse 13, we're revealing what was taught to us by the Spirit. That's John chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. The role of the Holy Spirit is our teacher. The Holy Spirit teaches and guides us in all things. And so he's saying, we, this is the spiritual role, we receive the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 tells us that we receive the Spirit at the point of our salvation. And that process begins. <clears throat> Therefore, we know God. We know His wisdom. We know His truth. Not exhaustively. And we don't become omniscient. But we begin to know God personally. By the way, the word know there is, it's in the noun form here, but the word know is uh, gnosko, which is not just factual knowledge about something. It's a deep, intimate knowledge about something. And that's, that's a precious truth, a deep, intimate knowledge of God. Paul is describing Paul is describing here in this, it's just a magnificent passage. He is describing the process that the Holy Spirit uses every single day in our life as we walk with him. This is how he teaches us. He knows God, he says Holy Spirit. He knows it searches the depths of God. We receive him at the point of our, our faith. Therefore, we begin to know God. We begin to know his truth. We begin to know his wisdom. So Paul concludes, I'm going to skip because I want to come back and look at this, but just let your eye go over to verse 16 of this chapter. This is a conclusion of all that he has taught in, verse two, uh, in chapter 2. This, man, this is an extraordinary claim. It's almost audacious. It's almost an out-of-bounds type of claim. And so he asks rhetorically, who has known the mind of the Lord that we should instruct him? He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. Well, the answer to that is nobody. God didn't say to me, Jim, what kind of day would you like me to create today? If he'd have asked me that, I said, well, Lord, it'd be really nice if the high today was 40. It was a gentle 15 mile an hour north wind, and there were some snow flurries. That's the kind of day I really like. And I know you all think I'm very strange, but that's just me. He didn't ask me that. God doesn't seek our counsel. He doesn't seek us out and ask wisdom, how would you like me to do this? What would you like me to do? He doesn't do that. But Paul then says, look at this claim. But we have the mind of Christ. Does that shock you a little bit? 
That's a very bold, audacious, almost unexpected claim. No, God doesn't seek our counsel. God doesn't seek our wisdom. God doesn't seek our viewpoint. He doesn't get a, a group of us together in a focus group and ask us what he would like us to consider, what he would like to consider us doing for it. That's not how he does it. He runs and governs his world, his way, with his plan. But Paul says, because of everything I've taught you, I can say this, we have the mind of Christ. Now what does he mean by that? We have the mind of Christ. We know all things in an exhaustive way? No, that's not what it means. We don't become God. We're omniscient, where we know absolutely... No, that's not what he's teaching. He uses the phrase, the mind of Christ. What he means is, we now begin to get God's perspective on things. Not Aristotle's perspective. Not Plato's perspective. Not President Obama's perspective. Not Governor Heinemann's perspective. Not Oprah Winfrey's perspective, not Ellen DeGeneres' perspective, or any of the other people who shape and mold the way people in America think today. God's perspective. And we begin, I often, when I, would, when I was president, I would often sign letters uh, and thank people for having an eternal perspective about things, that they're investing in something that the dividends will only be shown in eternity. Because that's the way we look at things. There's an eternal dimension to things. Why invest in people? Because you see, as God sees people, as the potential that that person has to be effective. You spend time with people in, in God's word because you know that is the only means by which their life will be changed. And, I'm, I'm, and you start to say, you know, I've told you many stories out of history before, but... Why did a whole group of Americans in the 1840s make a decision that slavery has to go in America? Because they'd come to faith in Jesus Christ during the Second Great Awakening. Second Great Revival that swept through our country. They said, biblical Christianity and slavery is incompatible with our faith. Why did William Wilberforce in Great Britain in the late 1700s organize a movement to get Slavery first, in stages, the slave trade abolished and then slavery abolished because he'd come to faith in Jesus Christ at a Methodist revival meeting outside of London. And he began to see something differently. He was a wealthy man. He was a wealthy aristocrat from a wealthy aristocratic family. He didn't need to do that, but he decided to commit his life to something that was important to God. Do you understand what I'm saying? That would never have happened in William Wilberforce's life. And yet he was one of the most significant change agents that I can think of in the history of Great Britain. That's what he means by he, I mean Paul. That's what Paul means by this process, this using Aristotle's argument, how he made logical argumentation statement to reach this conclusion. The bottom line of all this is we know God, his truth, his wisdom. We have the mind of Christ. And I see people. I see time. I see events that occur. 
through God's perspective. I may not completely understand them. Rarely do we. But I trust God. I trust that he knows what he's doing. I trust his sovereignty. I trust he has my best interest at heart. I trust his plan is a, 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 a infallibly wise plan. He's working it. And in his grace, he's chosen all of us to be a part of that. Now, I've talked for a bit here. I really, really, really wanted to get through 10 through 13. Now, let's, let's let that ruminate for a little bit. Any questions? Are you with me? Do you understand what Paul's doing here? Because he's helping us to understand a person outside of Christ who does not have the Spirit isn't going to get it. And let's not be surprised if they don't get it. Okay? So your silence either means understanding or it means utter, total bafflement and you don't have a clue what I've been saying. Taking your admonishment seriously. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. I think as you talked to somebody mentioned at the other table last week about how you take this outside today as you talk to people and bring up spiritual things, you can kind of see not, not, not just give them the fire hose, but just to see where they're at. But if they're, if they're not open to things, just don't give up on them. You never mm-hmm. know how God's going to work in their life. Just keep working with them. That's what I do in a lot of the street, working in sales. It may not be today, but it might be a year from now. Let's mm-hmm. say, boy, I remember back when you said those things to me a year ago. We should not, because of what the Apostle Paul has taught us here, we should not be surprised, one, by the apathetic response of people. We shouldn't be surprised by hostile response of people. And thirdly, it seems to me that's even more helpful, we shouldn't be surprised by the evil that's around us and just clusters of very unwise, foolish decisions that people are making in the very foolish ways of living their lives. Because if they don't have the Spirit, they're not going to see things the way God sees them. I honestly, and, and I don't know how, there's so many ways to respond to this, but that helps me have a perspective about my world. That keeps me sane. Do you understand what I mean by that? I shouldn't be shocked by evil because these are people that don't know Christ and they're living for themselves or they're living for some other set of reasons and it's not honest to the Lord. So why should we be surprised at dysfunction, disorientation, and self-destructive behavior? But the transformation begins when the Spirit of God, after our faith in Christ, takes up residence and this change begins to start. And he is explaining to us here, he is Paul, is explaining to us how this happens. And it, in a sense, um, he is talking about, if I can put it this way, the teaching ministry of the Spirit in our life. Now, I want to take that a step further in verse 14. But is, And I hate to be redundant here, but is everybody with me? Do you understand what Paul, not so much what I'm saying, but what Paul is teaching us here? I'm just trying to summarize what Paul's taught us. Jim. So, so Paul has here a, a broader view, not just doctrinal truth, but sort of perspective on life and living and kind of the whole I thing. I think so, because that's, that's what the rest of the book's going to be about. Absolutely. 
it's an all-encompassing because I, and I don't know where you guys are all at on something like this, but I really do believe there is such a thing called a Christian worldview that isn't just segmented into spiritual things and what we do on a Sunday. It's 24-7. It's every part of our lives. If Christ is Lord of all, then he is Lord over all, and that means every aspect of your life. You work at home instead in your responsibilities to bring glory to God through what you do. You're serving the company. You're serving the company's bottom line, but you're also bringing glory to God. That's why you pursue it with excellence. Paul says in first in Colossians three twenty two and following, your boss is Jesus. He uses the word kurios. Who's your boss? Jesus. I mean, that's when you start thinking of work like that. See, that's that's the mind of Christ. My boss is Jesus. He says, you serve, in Colossians chapter 3.23, I think it is, you serve the Lord Christ. Your boss is the Lord Christ. That's a, that's a revolutionary way. That's what others have looked at and say, that's the work ethic of Christianity. That's why Christi, a, a disciple of Christ is a good worker. <clears throat> they're reliable, they're honest, they're people of integrity, and they're serving Christ. Their work because is, is to serve Christ, bring glory to Christ. And if that's true, then excellence is the natural virtue of a Christian worker. Why? Because I serve Christ. Chip, does everybody have the Spirit in them? No. Whether you accept. No. Romans chapter 8 teaches you get the Spirit when you put your faith in Christ. So you have to make that step. That's right. Without this, you do not. If you don't, Paul says, if you don't have Christ, you don't have the Spirit. There's no spiritual light within an unbeliever, just waiting to be ignited, like a pilot light. The Bible does not teach that. You get that light, that Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's not impersonal. It's the person of the Holy Spirit when you put your faith in Christ. So, Jim, I think I asked this before when we were talking about. But it's not like a separate transaction. It is. I, my own understanding of what the New Testament teaches is it is not a separate transaction. That's right. All right. That's right. He's going to use that in the next chapter. The reason I ask that is because for those of us that this is an amazing concept. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, I mean you're right there on a way of, of bringing that up. This is, these are the deep things of our faith. This is the meat. This isn't baby talk. This isn't babbling like a baby. This is profound, deep seated truths about what God's doing in our lives. And uh, you know, I that and I you're bringing something up that can cause me to get frustrated because this is the kind of stuff, if I can be very blunt, and I probably shouldn't be, but since you're all friends, I can do it. This is what should be taught in our churches. This really should be driven home almost every Sunday. We're gathering together, and the Holy Spirit's here. He's going to teach us this morning. 
I'm just the agent. I, that's what I am. That's how I look at what I do. I'm the agent God's using. It's the Spirit of God who's tugging at your heart and teaching you. That's what John 16, verses 13 through 15 teaches us. But I want you to notice verse 14. Verse 14 is a very, very important verse. And there are three words used in verse 14 that are extremely significant in us understanding what he's doing. Now he's going to do, he's going to teach us by negative contrast. I don't know if you know what I mean by that. He says, but, I'm beginning in verse 14, but a natural man, all right, we got to stop. Who's the natural man? It's a person without Christ. It's a person without Christ. A person doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Jude verse 19 teaches us that, as does Peter. The natural man is the person who's not made the decision of faith. Now, I want you to, I don't know all of your translations, so this might be a little different. But I want you to take note of, and if you do things like this, you ought to underline it or start or something, the term except, the beginning of the verse, two-thirds of the way through the verse, understand. And for most of you, the last word of the verse should be appraised, spiritually appraised or discerned or something like that. These are very important words, and I want to pack each one of them. But the natural man, okay, we've already established, that's the person who has not made a decision of faith. The Spirit is not indwelling that person. Does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. What does that mean, accept? Accept, if the word is decamine, I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but it's, it's a term that doesn't so much mean an intellectual understanding of it. It means to receive it willingly, to welcome it. Do you understand what I mean? Let, let, let's, let's spend a moment or two on this. That the natural person, the person who hasn't made the decision of faith, hasn't trusted Christ, doesn't have the Spirit, does not welcome does not receive willingly the things of the Spirit. You see what he's saying? It doesn't mean they don't understand it intellectually. Let me give you an example. I have in uh, my office back at school, I have a, an exegetical commentary on the book of Colossians. Now, exegetical means it's thick and it's expensive. That's what it <laughs> and it's, it, it's just great. It's written by a German uh, exegete. It's, it's, really, it's really very, very well done. But I, I'm going to use this as an illustration. His, his chapter on Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, which is one of the most important <laughs> paragraphs in the scriptures on the deity of Christ. It's great. It's just flawless in its presentation of Christ's deity. And this guy goes through, he does word studies, he does historical background, that's why it's so valuable. And he ends up, this passage clearly teaches the deity of Jesus Christ. Then, at the bottom of his uh, uh, chapter, the end of his chapter, he has an applicational section. This is what he says, almost verbatim, because it hit me like a bombshell. But we in the modern world no longer believe such things. We believe that Jesus was a great man, a good ethical teacher. 
And the teaching that he was God was a teaching that the early church wanted to believe about him. But it's not objectively true. That man did not decimate the truths of Scripture. He did not willingly accept, willingly embrace, willingly welcome. Do you understand? He understood it intellectually. He understood what the words meant. But he didn't accept it. What is Paul telling us in verse 14? You need the Spirit. You can look at an argument, a logical presentation. That's what it teaches, but I don't believe that. You're not accepting it. You're not embracing it. Do you follow me? And he's telling us that's what the Spirit does. For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them. Now the word understand is not a term necessarily of intellectually understanding. It isn't that this is so fantastic I can't understand the words. That's not what it means. It means I cannot willingly embrace, internalize. I refuse it. It isn't I don't understand intellectually. I may understand intellectually. I understand the words. I understand what the sentence means. But I don't embrace it. I don't internalize it. And Paul says, because these things are spiritually appraised. Some of your translations might have judged. That's not a real good word. Spiritually appraised, spiritually discerned. And who enables you to do that? The Spirit. Let's turn it into a positive. The Spirit of God enables us to accept, to welcome, to, 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 to willingly receive what's taught. The Holy Spirit of God enables us to understand, to embrace, to internalize, to take it into our heart and our being. Because it is He who enables us to appraise, to discern what's taught there. Isn't that amazing? That is, to me, that is, that's why this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It, it just shows you, in a, in a fresh new way, how important the Holy Spirit of God is to us. And what he does in our life as our teacher. And I refer you back again to John chapter 16, 13 through 15, I think it is where he, Paul, uh, uh, Jesus is teaching, I'm sending you a counselor, I'm sending you a new paraclete. He's going to come alongside, and he's going to be your teacher. This passage explains how the Spirit does that. All right? Question. What, uh, what, what translation are you teaching? I'm, u- I'm using here the New American Standard. The what? New American Standard. And that's the one you always use? Uh, n- n- not always. <laughs> it depends on which one I think most... Accurately translating what the, but they this is almost flawless here. It's really, really, really well done translation. All right, any questions? It's not, it's not quite twelve thirty. You mean we're done? You, you, I I did get to the goal. Wow, I thought I'd never get through it. Okay. I I encourage you again. Um, I ask you to read this. 
couple times if you had time, and I think some of you did. But um, this is one of those passages, especially verse 10 through 16, that it's probably valuable to just go back and read this again. And if you jotted some of the things down or whatever, just to review again, man, Lord, you're so wonderful. You've given me a tool, the Holy Spirit, to enable me, to equip me, to be able to truly, truly come to terms with what you've revealed. That's, that's pretty amazing. Okay? So, may I ask you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm going to presume that this is, I mean, that the ability to do this is either have it or don't because you have the Spirit or right. you don't. But is there not, or maybe I should ask the question this way, is there is there a process associated with this that, as you become, as you study, as you become more mature, as you experience things in life, and you become more, I don't know, discerning or aware, or, I mean, is there sort of a, a building on your knowledge base as you continue to grow that, that, that facilitates this, or? Sure. I mean, I don't know if you could explain or speak well, to that. It's, Can we enhance this by study and... You know, exactly. One of the and we've talked about this a lot in our class over the last couple of years that we've been meeting. And I'll start by responding with that word. Remember, this is a process. Daryl correctly brought up a couple of minutes ago, because the New Testament uses these words. We're going to see it in chapter 3. Paul says, I started teaching you like a babe. I gave you milk. But now... It's time for you to start to eat some meat. So you're going from very simple truths that the Holy Spirit enables us to discern, to accept, and so on, to deeper things about the scriptures, about God's revealed word. So Jim, it is a process, and it does build. If, if I could use this term, it's, it's progressive in the sense that it's progressive, deeper understanding as both time, chronological time, as well as our walk with God go forward. So that to me is something that is really, really important for us. You don't come to faith in Christ and the next day you now have memorized all the major systematic theology categories and can quickly review them because the Spirit's now teaching you. That's not, that's not what he's saying here. But as you walk with God, and that's going to be a word he's going to use in this book, as you walk with God, you begin to deepen, one, your faith and trust in him, deepen, two, your understanding of what he is really doing in your life. Now, with this passage, you understand the importance of the Holy Spirit as your teacher. That's, it's like a child. You don't teach the chi- your five-year-old child calculus. You teach your child that two plus two equals four. And then I can't imagine why any human being would ever want to study calculus, but I'm glad some people do. But then when they're ready, then you give them calculus. You see what I'm saying? It's the same way with spiritual truths. I am your teacher, so to speak. And I've I've been around with a lot of you guys where I think now we can get into some of these deeper things that not necessarily are fitting two days after you come to faith in Christ. But 
It builds on your not your phrase was your knowledge base, but also your experience. All of those things are a part of the methodology and means of growth that God uses spiritually in our lives. This passage is teaching us the key role of the Holy Spirit in every one of those stages using his word. I find that enormously comforting too, for me personally. And it's also, for me, it's, it's extremely important for me as a teacher. Um, I will do my best to explain and everything, but the absolute final bottom line result is it's up to the Spirit. And if Joe doesn't get it, he'll get it next time. <laughs> I just hit him because he's to my right. Is what is the um, the um, kind of the operative difference between like, knowledge? Because knowledge will pass away, First Corinthians thirteen, and like obedience, right? It's not all are given the same number of talents. You know, if you're given more talents, you know, like yourself, you know, you have more knowledge that, that I may not ever have. But it's it's more important to be, you know, obedient to the, the spirit and to let the spirit guide you than to, you know, to be and I'm kind of building a premise here and asking you to either support or refute it that like the Gnostics, that it was all about the secret knowledge that I'm smarter than you and that's what got me across the line and Christianity doesn't seem to teach that. Not at all. Um, you know, I'm not, there's so many ways in which I could answer something like that, but th- let me um, make one simple point. Um, the term knowledge in the New Testament or the verb to know is usually not focused on content. It's usually focused on relational intimacy. So that a five-year-old child can know God. Mm -hmm. Just like a person with a PhD in theology can know God. It isn't just to know facts, information, details. I'm not saying those things are important, but the goal, the goal of Christian doctrine is godly living. That's the thesis of the pastoral epistles of Paul, 1st and 2nd Timothy and and Titus. That's the thesis of this book. I'm teaching doctrine so that it produces godly living. I'm not teaching doctrine to fill your heads up and think, well, I'm obviously now part of the spiritual elite. Andrew, isn't it? But I am. Joe is, but Andrew's... That's, no, that, if that's the goal, forget it. Don't. That's not what you Because the Gnostics, as, as you're correct in saying, the Gnostics taught only a spiritual elite few are going to make it. And they're the ones that they really understand everything. That's not what the Bible teaches. Because it isn't it isn't dependent on what you know. It's dependent on whom you know and what you do with that. It's his performance, not your Do- Yeah, do- Doctrine is a means to an end, and that end is godly living. You perform because you love. Yeah, exactly. That's I mean, and, and, and the Gnostics got it so wrong. And that's, but we still, have, we still have a lot of Gnosticism around, and, and, and that's, that's very dangerous. All right. This is good. Everybody with me? I really I mean is everybody with Paul. Do you understand what he's doing? 
Verse 15, let's tie this together and get in one more time read verse 16. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. And remember, spiritual in the context of everything he's been teaching us. Not some super spiritual elite. But the person who has the spirit appraises. And that's, that's the way the Newark can stand. I think Woody showed me whatever translation judges all things. That's not a helpful way to translate that, in my opinion. Because it you know, judges all things. It's like a person in their black robe sitting. That's not what it means. I like the word appraises better. Discerns. A discerning, um, wise, uh, appraising spirit. I'm be- and again, it gets back to what he's going to say at the end of verse 16. I'm beginning to see things and understand things the way God sees things and understands things. Yet he himself is appraised by no man. Um, Okay, what that means is that another person is not necessarily going to be able to praise and discern everything that God's doing in your life at that particular point in time. And, And he is incredible contrast God doesn't seek the counsel of anybody, verse 16a, but 16b. But because of the Holy Spirit and with all that he's just described, you and I have the mind of Christ. And it says that right there on that item three. Uh, it says the unbeliever, natural man, cannot understand. That's right. And, and then the opposite of that would be the spiritually mature could discern. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. All right. Now let me transition to chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, as you know, I think you know this, in the original letters, there weren't chapter breaks and verses. You know, it was just like a letter. These were added much later just for convenience. So in a sense, what you have to remember is Chapter 3, verse 1, is he's not going on to new thought because most of your translations probably begin verse 1 with what word? However. However, some translations might have and. He wants us to connect what he's just been teaching. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but to as to men of the flesh, as to babes in Christ. And spiritual in verse three, uh, verse 1, chapter 3, is the same as you see in verse 15 of chapter 2, and you saw throughout that previous chapter. Okay, what's he saying now? Let's, let's make sure we don't stumble on this. What's he saying about the Corinthians? They're immature. They're not very spiritually developed. And he uses the metaphor of what? They're babes in Christ. Now, how should we think about the phrase babes in Christ? How should we think about that? He certainly doesn't mean these are Corinthians who three days ago were born, came out of their mother's womb, and they're in a nursery at Hospital Colossae or, you know, Corinthian Hospital, uh, 
of Emmanuel on North 72nd Street or something like that. He gets what he's talking about? No. Hmm. Lacking spiritual maturity. Lacking spiritual maturity. As a matter of fact, when he uses the phrase men of flesh or fleshly men, uh, it's sarkinos, it means you, you are living as people who have not put your faith in Christ. You're living like you used to live. You're men of flesh. You're people of flesh. So the assumption is these people have come to faith in Christ and not much has happened. There hasn't been much growth. And Paul says, it's been hard for me to teach you because you're still babes. The book of Hebrews talks like this in a couple of different places. And the exhortation of the writer of Hebrews is, would you guys please get out of baby milk and get onto the meat? Would you start to move on now? Very strong language. He's not quite that strong here. He says in verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. You were not able even to receive it. Now, even now you're not able He's probably referring to back in Acts 18 when I was first with you. I taught you the very simple, basic ABCs of the faith. Now it's time to teach you more, but you're not ready. You see what he's saying? Now how do we apply that to our lives? Okay, your salvation with fear and truth. The implication or the inference we should draw from this is let's start challenging one another to think about, to study, and to apply the deeper things of God. Let's get to know God better. You see, one I, I studied in a man, his name was Howard Hendricks, and he used to say evangelicalism in the United States is 3,000 miles wide and a quarter of an inch deep. Now, when, when Dr. Hendricks said that, he wasn't making a compliment. <laughs> what he was saying, he was challenging the shallowness and, and the, 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 the superficiality of so much that's going on today in, in North America. And in a way, and, and if you can understand why and how that occurs, but in a way that's exactly what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. You guys know the truth. You know the basic ABCs of the truth, of, of the faith. But it's time for you to go a little bit deeper. It's, t- it's time for me to move from pablum and the bottle of milk to a big roast beef dinner with mashed potatoes, gravy, and corn on the cob. All of a sudden, I'm hungry, are you? <laughs> I, it's time to move on. But Paul's saying, I don't know if you're ready. I don't know if you, And that's why he's, he's gently, but you can certainly understand rather forcefully, saying to them, you're still pretty spiritually immature. I don't think you can handle what I have to teach you. And I think that's one of the reasons why today, and again, these are, these are broad statements. It may not 
apply to your local church here in town or wherever you, you, you call your church home. But that's why today, and often so many of our churches, we do not teach sound doctrine from the pulpit. We don't teach prophetic scripture from the pulpit. We don't, we, I mean, we don't, because one, people aren't terribly ready or equipped or even necessarily want to, and so we just, we keep feeding the things that are very simple and very basic, and and that that's important, it's, it's extremely important to do that, but... Paul says, it's time to move on. And I don't know if you're ready. Um, I don't do Bible studies like a lot of people do. And, uh, you know, that you guys show up is amazing to me. But if you're going to be in a Bible study, I want you to be in the deep things that this text is teaching us. And I will do the best possibly I possibly can to make it clear. But ultimately, it's up to you to either you know accept it, internalize it, and let it change your life, or not. Some of you are still babes, and that's okay. Some of you, a couple of you, I know it's not been very long since you put your faith in Christ. But others, it's just it's it's important for us to grow. It's important, and the only way you grow is through the the Word of God. So that's what He's teaching us here. And now he's going to lay some some more difficult things on them. Yeah, there's time out there. Please, absolutely. Are we talking about, uh, let's say that we are ready. You are. For the meeting, or I am. Sure, okay? you are. And, but, okay, if I'm going to do, and I equate that with getting into the Bible more, and with daily reading and studying on my own, more than just one hour a week here. So... If I were to, if you were to suggest to me what I might do to get into the meat, where would you start? And and you have a, a way that you encourage people to do a daily reading uh, in their Bible. Well, Woody, that's a that's a great question, but it's hard for me to to know exactly how to respond. Um, we don't I, have to. I, well, <laughs> I want to I, I separate something out, though, from the way you said it, and I know you, uh, you're, you're, you're very sensitive to this. Um, it, is, it is very, very, very important that we understand, what, however you're putting that, that what God is looking at is not necessarily, Woody, now, starting tomorrow, you must read six chapters of some part of my Bible, or I'm not very pleased with you. That is not how the Lord looks at that. He's encouraging us to be in his word. There's no set, right, necessary pattern to do that. It's what is comfortable with you, where you're at in your life, but that you have a desire to to want to do that, however that can work out in your life, is a very important desire that the Holy Spirit's going to use. It's, it's helpful... I think always, depending on how you're looking at it at this point in your life, to start again with one of the Gospels. That, you know, like Mark is a short Gospel. It's short, pithy, it's quick, fast action. We studied John. Uh, John. Didn't we study John in here, I think, or not? Maybe I, I thought we did. That's a very deep, very deep God. It's a great one. But, you know, it's just, again, reviewing who Jesus is, what he did, what he accomplished, and so on. Uh, the letters of Paul are always helpful, probably depending on where you're at. It's not a good 
it's not good to start in Leviticus. Don't, you know, don't spend a lot of time there right now. But, uh, you know, it's always good to start again and think through, again, all that's being taught about who Jesus is, what he accomplished and what he did. We're studying 1 Corinthians because it's applying the teachings of Jesus to a church. Uh, I, I will also, I'm going to email you because I'm going to email you a couple of helps that uh, you can you do with what you want. Is it more than just the gospel itself, isn't it? Through your actions and serving? Sure. You know? Absolutely. That's right. And all of that, I mean, all of that in terms of what specifically then that means, but all of that uh, is, I think, what flows out of your growing relationship with God. Because to serve him then necessarily means serving others. That's, that's what he says. Uh, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And give my life, Jesus said that. And the things we'll see in, in Corinthians. But what that looks like and what that specifically means is what begins to be worked out in your own life. In my judgment, it begins. It begins first and foremost with your daily relationship with God. And it begins, secondly, with seeing whatever you do vocationally, seeing that work as a gift from God, and I pursue that with excellence and diligence because he's my boss. And if you're married, it's understanding your role as a husband. If you're a father, it's understanding all of those things, those, those circles of our life. The Bible has a lot to say about those things. And that's part of, okay, now, Lord, I'm understanding what that means. Enable me now to live that way to your glory. we got to quit. And up. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this great, great, great passage of Scripture. I am so thankful that you, Holy Spirit, inspired this. Um, this helps us to have clarity of understanding of every time we open the Bible what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Uh, this is encouraging. It's also edifying. It builds us up. And it gives us a, a greater clarity of what you're really doing in our life and how you use your word. And then that end result, that we have the mind of Christ. We are beginning that process of seeing and understanding things the way you see and understand things. That's a great gift. So I pray that you'll bless each guy here. Thanks for their lives. Thanks for what you're doing in their lives. Thanks for their faithfulness to you and their desire to grow in their walk with you. And they certainly have the right priority where they see your word as a key element in that growth. Bless them, enrich them, give them your protection, and we ask that you will help them as you help me to represent you well in Christ's name.